This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hi, listeners. I hope you're enjoying this 10-part look back over the last decade of The Bubble Hour podcast. You're now on episode eight. This one focuses on some of my favorite moments of the last decade. Obviously, I've been able to fill this whole season with standout moments and in some ways trying to pick highlights and and the best moments is like trying to choose your favorite child. I mean, I love them all. I've loved every episode. I've loved my involvement with this podcast from start to finish. There's not anything that's better than anything else. In this episode, I was thinking about what changed me, what affected me as a host of this show. When were times when I didn't just enjoy doing an interview or work hard to really bring out the guest's story or to connect with the listener, but when did I feel especially transformed or changed by something I learned or experienced in that hour? And that's what I decided to highlight today. For the past 10 years, we just showed up and recorded the conversation that unfolded and presented it as such. And this season, season 10, is very different because I'm combing back through all of the archived materials and I am painstakingly finding audio clips that demonstrate the spirit of the show or an idea that I'm trying to connect with you about the story of the show. The biggest challenge of putting together this final season has been feeling that it's just impossible to choose one specific moment or message over another. So at first it was overwhelming and I wasn't sure how to go about it, hence the long delay while I figured that out. There were so many examples of, say, moments of kindness or moments of levity or insight or goof-ups that I could really just choose anything and trust that you would connect the dots. If you have been a guest on this show or if you have found yourself connecting with something and you're not hearing it in this look back, that doesn't mean that it wasn't significant. This look back had to be 10 episodes and not 300, but that's why we're hanging on to the entire archives of the show and making them available in fullness through Patreon. So I've enjoyed every single conversation, every guest, every lesson, every aha moment. And I know that might sound like an overstatement, but it's true. And I didn't even realize how true it was until I started going back through the archives and show by show. I just realizing that every single episode held something precious and golden. Sometimes I would hear something that I didn't hear the first time and think, oh, 
you know, that hits me different now because I'm different, right? And there's that expression, you know, when the teacher is, no, when the student is ready, the lesson appears or the teacher appears. We level up and things that really were insightful to us at one stage of our growth, maybe we take them in stride later on, but we hear something new that takes us even further that was lost on us before. Maybe listen to some old episodes that you haven't heard for a while and see how they hit you differently. Doing this season and having the incredible experience of revisiting moments from the past and then bringing my current self to them, taking myself 10 years back to a conversation and experiencing it now from here and realizing it still offers me new ways to grow is exciting to me, I guess, that there's still so much to learn and that old material still holds so much for us. You know, we we can go back through our entire bookshelf and reread things. That's the beauty of recovery. It's not that the work is never done. It's that we have this unlimited capacity to continually grow in new directions. In fact, as I'm putting together the book that you're hearing advertised on this show called Take Good Care, which is a collection of readings that are based on moments of inspiration from this show, each reading has three little boxes so that you can come back to it three different times and make a note of how it affects you differently the next time you read it. So what I decided to do in this episode is to choose some standout moments that touched me or shaped my thinking or helped me grow. And you might have been listening to these podcasts all these years without really thinking about how some of the interviews affected us hosts just as much as they affected you in the audience. Amanda made note of this. It was true for all of us. Well, I love that we all have our own revelations on the show and that I see each of us growing on each show. I also loved coming across this exchange between Ellie and me from a few years back when we talked about our spirit of goodwill that we felt for other people in the recovery arena that we're producing podcasts. It's really interesting to sort of watch the evolution of the way people talk about recovery, the way they talk about drinking. It's become a more accessible topic to more people and pretty amazing evolution to be sort of part of the early on back in like 2008, 2009, like the blogging movement. And then people got a hold of other mediums like podcasts and other forums. And it, there's an abundance of really good ones now. And it's encouraging to me to to see that because the more discourse there is, the more people can be helped. And I think it's amazing. There was a time in my life, probably when I wasn't well, I would have been kind of competitive and protective about whatever project I was doing. I'm really glad that the healing that recovery does lets us acknowledge the abundance and not have to sink into that sort of petty competitiveness and know that the more the merrier and the more people that talk and put things out there like this or the new things that come up, the better, right? I mean, this it's not pie. You know, we're not fighting over a, a finite amount of, of goodness here. It, it seems to replenish itself. And the more perspectives and viewpoints and opinions and in, insights and advice that people share. I mean, I learn things every day from people that I follow online and talk to in person. It's, it's, it's how it's done. You know, that feeling of abundance, it seemed to inform a mindset of generosity and a lack of ego and of kindness that set the tone for everything we did together over the years on this show. One early interview I participated in that had a profound effect on me was with Dr. John Kelly of the Recovery Research Institute. 
I felt that his input validated what I had assumed up to that point was kind of a folk wisdom. I didn't realize that there was so much science and study behind some of the ideas around recovery. I immediately signed up for a monthly newsletter from the Recovery Research Institute, and I highly recommend it to all of you. I'll put a link in the show notes. Everything is mediated through the brain, right? All of our thoughts are generated by the brain. Um, so psychology has a biological basis always. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there, and there are ways that we can change our brain and heal, heal our brain, help our brain get better. And, and the way that that happens typically is that we have, you know, one part of our brain, for example, our prefrontal cortex, where we do a lot of our thinking and judgment and, and make decisions. We can make those decisions with, you know, maybe that, that part of the brain that's working that can make, try to make better decisions that then actually can help heal the other parts of the brain. And so that's what the brain does is that it, the, the modules that are able to, that are working a little bit better uh, will, will try and make, you know, try and, try and you know, heal uh, the other parts of the brain. Typically, you know, we obviously the, the, we have to make those decisions, and it's the decisions and the actions that follow those decisions which actually heal the brain in terms of recovery because typically what happens is people have to abstain for the brain to have a respite from the neurotoxicity of drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, without that, the brain cannot recover while it's still being bombarded. So one has to make a decision that, okay, I'm, I, I really want to quit, and then the person has to get the help that's necessary or recruit the resources around them and, and, and latch onto those resources for that person to be able to remain abstinent for a while enough that the other parts of the brain and maybe the deeper subcortical areas of the brain can start to readjust and heal. Um, so in other words, you have one part of the brain, in this case the prefrontal cortex, that's actually helping to heal another part of the brain. And the brain does that. It uses the, the best functioning modules or the best parts of those modules to try and help uh, damage parts of the brain. Another thing that had a profound effect on me was listening to how people in recovery interact. There's just so much wisdom and kindness in how people speak to one another. So if you're around someone who's been in recovery for a while, watch them listen to someone, watch them interact with someone who's maybe a newcomer, and you'll learn so much from just observing their interactions, the words they choose, and their approach. When Lucy Hall described how she greets newcomers to her recovery center, my ears perked up in this interview. When I walk past admissions and I see a newcomer, I was welcoming them to Mary Hall Freedom House. And I'll say, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you ready for recovery, one being you wish you would go back out that front door and go get another hit. Where you at? And they'll say, well, I'm about a four. And I'll be like, wow, congratulations, a four. Why didn't you say a three? And then they're going to tell me why they said a four. Therein lies their hope. And then I'm going to say to them, so what do you think it's going to take to get to a five? Therein lies their outlook. Because you now get me looking towards, I can go, I can be a five and I can keep moving in the direction to get to that 10, I'm all in versus turning around and going back. So teaching people the language of recovery and how to ask the right questions. You know, you, you, you ask your loved one instead of saying, you make me sick because you get high every day. 
Just ask them. So you use something every day. How's that working for you? So it's all in the questions that we ask as opposed to accusing people. Because, see, I can't make you feel that. I can't. I can't make you feel bad because I'm getting high. But my getting high does have an impact on you. So tell me about that. Keep it in mm. the I statement. I'm wondering where you learned to talk to people in that way. I mean, I love that approach of where are you at and, you know, talking about the hope and, and bringing out that dialogue. Did someone model that for you? Did you stumble upon it along the way? Is it a, is it a technique that the rest of us can learn somewhere? Where did that come from? Oh, absolutely. I definitely think from my many years of experience, um, I also know from my many years of experience on the receiving side, to this day, I don't like for nobody to accuse me of something. Ask. Ask me the right question. Um, and also, as the CEO of the organization, you know, I, I think there are many things that we learn um, from many people and you try different things and then you put things together and you're like, now that works. You know, it's one of those things like your mom probably gave you some recipes and and you've got your own flair to it today. You know, it's it's her recipe that you took and made your own. So it's it's gleaming along the way, different techniques and methodologies, but also, you know, different things that you learn along the way that work, you know. And, and I just know that when it comes to motivational interviewing, or um, encouraging people or keeping people hopeful. hopeful That's what the product is, keeping people mm-hmm. hopeful. Mm-hmm. And that's why you call yourself a hope dealer, right? <laughs> you better believe it, girl, for real, for real. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles, little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. I often heard as well from guests who themselves were surprised at how transformative it was for them to participate in the show. Because as they prepared to tell their story, documented it, and thought about sharing it, they often had aha moments of their own. To me, this is part of the beauty of the Bubble Hour, how each interview seemed to have a positive effect for everyone involved, the guest, the host, and the audience. 
And we all did this together. So it's not simply just a one-way consumable entertainment infotainment. It's really been a series of heart-to-heart-to-heart conversations. One experience I cherished has been recording some interviews for the show in person. I was helping to facilitate retreats for women in recovery. I do this on different occasions. You've heard recordings from retreats that I did at Kripalu in Massachusetts, and as well as one in Mexico. As a side note, I take part in these retreats occasionally. If you want to be notified when I'm doing one, follow me on Instagram, Jean McCarthy Writes, or you can follow my blog, Unpickled, or follow Unpickled or The Bubble Hour on Facebook if when I do more retreats, I'll be posting in those places. Now listening back to them, it just feels so heartwarming because I recall sitting together with each of these guests while we recorded. My name's Allison, and I've been in recovery for four years, and I never thought I'd be able to stop drinking, but I did. Every day is a gift now. Every day that... I open my eyes and I don't have to think if I can pick my head up off that pillow is a gift and a wonderful day. Did you think you'd ever say that? No, never. I never thought I'd say any of that. I used to, I would go to meetings and hear other people say how grateful they are and how thankful they are. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I never thought that that would be me saying that. Well, I tried to stop drinking for a long time and I kept relapsing, I kept thinking I could drink like a normal person, and then I'd be sober for a while, and then I'd try again, and that went on for years. And then um, I went to an IOP, intensive outpatient, that helped a lot, and it made sense to me. I was able to remain sober for about a year. But then I went back out again because I thought, oh, I got this. I can drink like a normal person. And I just didn't want to give it up. I liked it. I liked drinking. I liked how it felt. And I didn't want to give it up. So that went on for a while. And then, oh, a couple bad things happened. And my husband really wanted me to go to uh, inpatient rehab. And I kept resisting, you know, no, no, I won't go. That doesn't turn out so well usually. It was his um, goal to find me an appropriate rehab. And I had some restrictions. I wanted non-12-step based. I wanted non-punitive rehab. There were, there were a few restrictions that, that I had to find an appropriate rehab. Well, he found one. It's called Practical Recovery in San Diego, and it's based on smart recovery and as opposed to a 12-step recovery. So we went to smart recovery meetings, and I'll tell you a little bit about smart recovery. It's also abstinence-based for people with all kinds of addictions, and it's self-empowering, meaning that I have the power. It's to my power to take control of my sobriety and my addiction. It, It just makes so much sense to me. There are no labels. I learned how not to use labels. I don't really will say I'm an alcoholic. I would much rather say I'm in recovery because I'm so many more things than an alcoholic. So I just say I'm in recovery because um, alcoholic, I don't like that term because then I'd feel if I said that, that would be my whole identity. That would be who I was. 
and I have many other identities that I just say I'm in recovery. There are meetings and tools, and it's a, a behavior-based program and a scientific-based program, and it, it, the approach to behavioral change is built around four points. The first one is building and maintaining the motivation to change. The second is coping with urges. Third is managing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And the fourth is living a balanced, positive, and healthy lifestyle. And those are the things that I learned when I was in inpatient rehab. And those are the things that I tried to bring back with me into my daily life. My name is Emma, and um, I started my recovery journey about two years ago. And I was working with doctors and uh, going to weekly meetings. Uh, a few false starts during that first year, for sure. Yeah, I'm just definitely gaining more confidence, and I'm trying new things that I would never have thought that I would be doing, which has been amazing. Like what? Uh, well, being here, for example, <laughs> like just going chatting with you, I never thought I would do this. Um, I went to... I'm terrified of heights. Um, I went to an indoor skydiving thing, so that was pretty cool. Um, you know, just going to different spiritual work, retreats, which I never thought I would do either. And yeah, just really always pushing myself out of my comfort zone and uh, also being more confident at work, which is really key as well. This whole recovery engagement is a very patient process. I know that some of you listened for years before you made changes in your life. And some of you might be listening now and still in the contemplation or preparation stage of change. And you're using this podcast to help you build the courage towards your action. And so that leads me to one of my very favorite moments that comes to mind. Remember the Boston meetup where we mentioned that we had hosted a potluck dinner from some of the listeners in the area. One person I met that night was a lady named Nancy. And she'd come to the event. She was clearly very uneasy. I could tell how much courage it had taken for her to attend that night because she really looked like she felt pretty shy and pretty uncomfortable. And she sat off to the side of the room, just on the edge of the conversations. And, you know, she looked uncomfortable, but she was there, right? She showed up. And I have so much respect for that. You know, when things are hard and we do them anyway, there's, there's a lot of power in that. So I struck up a conversation with Nancy and we stayed in touch. And she was in and out of recovery for a while, for a few years, actually. She had started to make some of the transformations that she desired. And eventually she did get to that place that she envisioned for herself. And she came on the Bubble Hour to share her story. So to me, her recovery is a triumph. And her interview is actually one of the most popular episodes of the entire decade. Nancy read a poem that she wrote about recovery. And it has been shared and reshared many, many times in audio and print. It's called I'm Sorry. Here's Nancy reading her poem. I always said I'm sorry for everything I did. I think that it began when I was just a kid. I'm sorry that I'm little. I'm sorry I get mad. I'm sorry if I'm not as smart as my mom or dad. I'm sorry that I'm shy and that my chest is flat. I'm sorry I'm not ready to do the stuff like that. I'm sorry about the baby. He's colicky. He'll cry. I'm sorry I can't comfort him no matter how I try. I'm sorry for my house. It's messy. We have boys. I'm sorry for my car. It's making a strange noise. I'm sorry about my cooking. It isn't always great. I'm sorry that I'm tired. I'm sorry that I'm late. 
Sorry about the garden. The yard is such a mess. I need to do some weeding. We need to paint the fence. I'm sorry about my dog. He should be better trained. I'm sorry about my kitchen. I'm sorry about my brain. I'm sorry about my hair. I'm sorry I'm a bore. I'm sorry. Sometimes I forget what I said before. Sorry I was quiet. Sorry if I said too much. Sorry I was clumsy. Sorry I was rushed. Sorry I spent money. Sorry I was cheap. Sorry I'm so sensitive. Sorry I'm too deep. Sorry that I drank too much. Sorry that I quit. Sorry if you find that weird. Sorry for all my shit. I've been sorry for my flaws, each and every one. And yet, I have to tell you, sorry isn't fun. I'm sick of saying sorry or swallowing my words. It's time I just said, fuck that. All these sorries are absurd. I'm not sorry for my thoughts, my hips, my breasts, my brain. I'm not sorry for my feelings. I'm not sorry for my pain. I'm not sorry for my cooking. It's nourishing and good. I'm not sorry for my car. It takes me where it should. I'm not sorry for my home. It's filled with love and care. I'm not sorry for my body, my wrinkles, or my hair. I'm not sorry for my voice. I think it should be heard. I'm not sorry for the many times I'm searching for a word. I'm not sorry that I'm sober. It's how I want to be. I'm not sorry if you wish I'd drink. I'll have a cup of tea. I'm not sorry that I'm human, warm and soft and kind. I'm not sorry I'm imperfect in body and in mind. I'm ready for that chapter of apologies to end. I'm ready for acceptance of everything I am. And so I'll just apologize one last heartfelt time to the person that I've been and am, the person that is fine. I'm sorry, little girl, that I criticized you so. I'm sorry, awkward teenager. I should have let you know that you were truly lovely, compassionate, and smart. I'm sorry, brand new mother, with your enormous heart. I'm sorry, middle-aged me. I love you. You're a dear. I'm sorry that I've hurt you, but that is stopping here. I'm finding self-compassion, the missing link, I think. I know it's what I didn't have when I would choose to drink. My light is shining brightly. My sisters are at hand. I'm ready to take care of me in every way I can. I'm rising through my sadness. I'm rising from my pain. I'm rising from my guilt. I'm rising from my shame. I'm ready now to stand. I'm ready soon to soar. I'm ready. Please come with me. I see an open door. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope.
Now, you know I love a good story. So in addition to the recovery encouragement and inspiration we heard week after week, there have been some very memorable stories of life's twists and turns. And one of my favorite is from a guest named Kelly, who has become a dear friend of mine. Kelly realized after she quit drinking that the only way she could stay sober was to leave her marriage because alcohol played a big role. It was a difficult decision. She's a mom of four teens at the time. It was very hard, but her recovery served her well, and she led her family through this difficult time. She went on a a trip with one of her sons, and he took her to this little town in the Netherlands. They rented a vacation rental that was next to a windmill, an actual windmill. And guess what happened? Yeah, she fell in love. It was basically a Hallmark movie come to life when the handsome man who was the keeper of the windmill turned out to be the love of her life. I'll let her tell the story. It's best in her words. Well, that's a fun story right now because, um, you know, when I went through my divorce, I was married 24 years and I really just thought like, that's it. I'm not these people who are going to be having, you know, that romance, my life or love of my life. And I'm at peace with that. And I went forward just to really be happy myself. And I really dove in for the next few years of, you know, really getting to know myself and, and really invested my energy in me, which was great. And I really cherished that time because it was, it was a time where I could find out what does spark my joy in a time of huge growth for me. But there was something really special about that time. I feel like it was part of my, like a caterpillar to a butterfly time of like transition, transformation and, and just putting all that energy that I would put into someone else into me. And after years of being a codependent person, that was really a revelation um, that I could be super happy and just be on my own with friends, with my children, living my life, and that it wasn't about finding a man. And I did that. And one of the things that happened was because of my sobriety, my 24-year-old son, 23 at the time, invited me to go on this adventure to Europe. And he said, Mom, would you want to go with me? And I want to, I want to take you to this place he'd been in, in the Netherlands. And he said, you'll just love it. It's the cutest town. And I need to take you and let's do this. And Another part of my story was that during that time, I kind of started saying, I'm going to say yes to everything I can that comes in my path. Like, you've heard that idea, like the year of yes. And that was kind of yes. what I did. Like, my brain at first for everything was like, you can't do that. My first response is always no, because my brain will do that. And I just, I always think it through. Like, this isn't, if this is coming to me, like, why can't I? And I was really lucky to have, you know, support a mother to help me with my other kids and who really encouraged me. you like, you have to do this. And so I really just jumped at the chance to travel with my son. And we, you know, rented a, stopped in Iceland for a week, and we rented a camper van. We had so much fun, and it was just something I never would have done sober. I don't think he ever would have invited me because it was all about just being in nature. It wasn't about my old way of traveling, which would have been restaurants and shopping and, you know, going to cool bars. And um, it was just about really the simple things and having a great adventure and hiking and and so we went from Iceland, and then we went to Netherlands, and we had uh, booked Airbnb, a windmill, and, and it was just almost, it was kind of like a fairy tale, because I smacked out brand to the first person that, that I was, like, just like, oh my goodness, uh, there you are. And it was kind of a funny feeling that after so many, you know, three years of head down, working on myself to, to meet so this So this was that, the Airbnb host picked you up yeah. at the airport, Yeah, he picked right? us up, yeah. And he, he was pretty cute, airport. and you had some flutters there. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, some flutters. And then uh, he lives in a windmill, and we stayed in the house he had built next to the windmill. That was the last September, and then since then now, 
I've been over there uh, two times, and we'll go back next month. And we went to Paris last month, and it was just very exciting that things have really started to, to go in that direction that I never saw coming. It's just a beautiful life over there, and I think that was the first thing beyond that I was attracted to him was just, I kind of thought I would fall in love with anyone who had made this beautiful life. It was such a beautiful life there. And then the more I talked to him, there was more and more that were like, oh, my gosh, so many things in common. And, and it really did feel like, wow, how amazing. My son and I are here, and it felt meant to be. Because even when my son said, do you want to go to this little town in the Netherlands, I thought, oh, but there's all these other places in Europe I haven't been. And I didn't argue. I was just more like, yes. I want to go where you want to take me. And it just felt very, um, it just was really beautiful, like, oh, and then it has just proven, you know, you know, over time that we, it just does feel really like that was just meant to be. So, yeah, we've had beautiful experiences and really exciting. And I do, um, when I left my marriage, I just feel that quote, you know, what if I fall, but what if I fly? All I could focus on when I left marriage was the loss, and, and it was really scary and hard to do. And feeling like, you, you know, you just can't see all the good that will come your way if you let go of something that's not working for you. And that's true for drinking. It's true for anything that's causing you to feel like you're not growing. To have that faith that, you know, that there's going to be good things that come is not just what you're letting go of. What are you making room for? Right. You know, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another. And, and, and so when you hold on to something that's not working, you're really not allowing space for whatever other beautiful thing could fill its place. And I feel like my life has been, you know, just really affirming of that feeling of, of the beauty, um, taking the place of the things I'd let go of. Now, my friends, the happy ending to this story is that after enough plot twists to truly form a sequel to that movie, Kelly is now married to this handsome windmill man. And she moved to the Netherlands, and they all lived happily ever after. Another memorable interview I recall participating in was with Frank, the stepfather of our co-host, Amanda. And Frank had come on for a special Father's Day episode. And what touched me so much about this conversation was the affection that he had and the emotion in his voice when he talked about Amanda and what it felt like for him as a person in recovery to see his beloved daughter struggling with addiction. Our listeners know Amanda's story pretty well. So I think we're all really curious about your perspective on Amanda. Before Amanda got sober, were there times where you were worried about her drinking? Oh, yeah. She was a horrible drunk. She was terrible. She is very, very willful and uh, mouthy. <laughs> and uh, you, just, you just couldn't, you know, make any sense to her. And she was just obnoxious sometimes. <laughs> Amanda. <laughs> you, did you see that emptiness oh, yeah. in Amanda, too? And how did you feel knowing oh, that she was oh, going yeah. through that? Oh, I just wanted to help, but I mean, I also realized, you know, through years and years of exposure and talking and in meetings and other places, there's not really much you can do until the person who's suffering decides to turn their life around. You can be there and encourage them, but a lot of times that falls on deaf ears, especially if they're stubborn. And uh, she was stubborn. 
kind of heartbreaking to watch someone hurting themselves like that. But you have to believe in, you know, I had to believe in Amanda. You know, I had to believe that she would find her way because she's such a smart kid and she's so much fun. She would be able to straighten her life out, get the idea of being sober and surrender. I mean, it's a hard thing to do when you're stubborn to surrender. Believe me, I know. How did you show your support for her without telling her what to do or giving her ultimatums? How how does that look to support someone and sort of live out the solution for them but not tell them what to do? Yeah, it's kind of hard. But, I mean, you talk to them and you say to them, I think you're heading for a problem. There's a lot of people in our family that, you know, have a similar problem. I have had the same problem, and I know a solution to it. You know, if you ever need any help with it, please, please let me know. And I'd be glad to help you, no matter what it takes. Do you remember those conversations, Amanda? Oh, yeah, I do. My dad handled things and my mom the best that they could. You know, I I was as stubborn as could be. And, you know, I really did think that I had it under control. And I remember I would always say, yeah, I'm watching my drinking. I wanted to please my parents more than anything in the world. And I, I just didn't know how to do it. I found that conversation very sweet. I was so struck by his patience. And it taught me to be more patient with others in my life that I wanted to fix and hurry along. I just had never thought of taking such a measured approach. And Frank was inspirational in that way. Here's the other thing about that interview that I will never forget. Here's the part you can't hear. I was suffering throughout that interview because I was on vacation at my in-laws and I was recording my end of the show over the phone while sitting in a little guest cottage in the woods. And moments before the interview started, or maybe a few minutes into the interview, my brother-in-law and his family were leaving and they were there with an RV and they had drained the tank on their RV into the septic system before they left. You know, that's what's supposed to happen. There's a septic system there for that reason. However, the cottage I was in just had a new sink put into it. And the sink did not yet have the back valve that would have stopped the smell of sewer gas, fresh, stinky, stinky, stinky blackwater sewer gas that had just been released into the septic system, wafted back up and filled this tiny little hot, hot, hot cabin that I was sitting in. (laughs) throughout that entire hour plus that we spent talking about Father's Day with Frank and Amanda. I was absolutely dying in this room. Now, let me be clear, there was no actual sewer stuff that came into the room. It was just the smell, but it was horrible and it was awful. And I couldn't leave because it was the only quiet spot with cell reception where I could do my end of the show. But I did see the humor in the situation. It was all I could do not to just collapse into a fit of giggles throughout that entire show. And I kept considering during the show, should I confess to Amanda and Frank that I was sitting in this hot, hot, smelly, smelly, awful room with tears running down my face from the smell? I thought if I started talking about it, I would absolutely start laughing hysterically and lose my composure entirely. I just felt that the conversation between Amanda and her stepfather was so sweet and so compelling and informative that I didn't want to take away from that by saying, oh, by the way, it stinks over here. If you ever go back and listen to that episode again, you will do so with the knowledge that I was truly suffering (laughs) on my end. And 
Maybe you can hear clues of that. I think I hit it pretty well. That was season four, episode 23, Father's Day. Hey, I can't leave you there. I can't end this episode and leave you with the smell of raw sewage as my end note. Let's let's take it up a little. How about I leave you with an inspirational quote from a guest, the wonderful, warm, and wise Kathy Robbins, who said something brilliant that I jotted down on a piece of paper that is on my desk to this day. And every time I look at it, I smile and remember the way that this guest impacted me. There's a lot of jokes about affirmations, but there really is a lot of research base to show that feeding yourself, it's really just about feeding yourself positive thoughts. Like one of my mantras that's been with me for 30 years is my life is unfolding perfectly. And I have it on my desk. My life is unfolding perfectly. And it's just something about saying that. I remember no matter what I'm going through, it's okay. And so just whatever that might be for you, different people have different mantras or different affirmations. But find, I would say, find certain affirmations that speak to your inner soul. And then when things are happening, you can say them to yourself. And a few examples are, I deserve to be healthy. I am a worthwhile person, and there is a place for me. I am lovable because I am here. I did a workshop, and I had a client. We were discussing affirmations, and someone said, you are lovable. And she said right back to her partner that she was doing this exercise with, no, I'm not. And it was like, oh. And she surprised herself. She realized, oh, my gosh, it was just the first thing that came was, no, I'm not. So she started working on doing a mirror exercise. You are lovable. And she said she couldn't believe, she couldn't even look at herself in the mirror. And she had no idea that she felt this strongly about it. And so with, with affirmations and doing some mirror work, by the end of the workshop, it was so fantastic. She stood up and shared with the group. It was a group exercise and said, I, am, I can say it. I am lovable. This is a wonderful thing. And she didn't even really know that she felt that she wasn't. So as Kathy was speaking, I wrote down on a little piece of paper, my life is unfolding perfectly. It's still here on my desk. It's been years. But this little slip of paper, just slightly larger than what you might pull out of a fortune cookie, it sits where I can see it every day. And it not only reminds me that, yes, indeed, my life is unfolding perfectly, but it also reminds me of beautiful conversations, like some of the ones you've heard today that have impacted me and that have changed my life. And I hope that this episode gave you a little glimpse of maybe what was going on in my head and my heart on the other side of the microphone. I'm slightly hesitant to sign off now because I only have two more episodes left to build for you and they are going to be tear jerkers for me. In the next episode, we'll hear farewell messages from listeners followed by, dare I say it, the last and final episode with a sign off from my co-hosts and me. So hand on heart, big breath. Off we go. We'll see you next time, everyone. Until then, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I 
Just want to 